0: So the topic for today's lecture, as you can see up there, is molecular evolution and ecology. And what I mean by this is it's basically um, the study or, or Um, What what we try to figure out in molecular evolution and ecology is what genes or gene sequences can tell us about the evolution and ultimately also the ecology of organisms in the environment. And it's particularly relevant for thinking about microorganisms, prokaryotes in the environment, and I hope I can actually convince you today of that. So um, uh this is a pointer, I think. The topics that I want to cover today is, first of all, I'm going to review a little bit um, what we know about life on Earth, sort of give an overview of the evolution of life on Earth. Then I want to go into a specific topic that's of particular relevance for the evolution of eukaryotes. That's the endosymbiosis theory. And then I'll explain how we can use gene sequences to actually reconstruct um, events that have happened a very, very long time ago. Okay, So we'll look at what we call molecular phylogenies, or the use of gene sequences to reconstruct um, the history, the evolutionary history of organisms on Earth. Derived from that, we'll look then at uh, what we call the tree of life. And that's sort of the big picture overview of the evolutionary relationships of all organisms on the planet. And then finally, I'll cover. I'll introduce you to a topic called molecular ecology again, and that's how we can use gene sequences to learn something about the diversity of microorganisms in the environment. And that will lead us then uh, next time, when I come back on Monday, into this big topic of um, environmental genomics, how we can actually um, expand uh, this analysis to learn much more about uh, organisms in the environment. So first of all, let's look at life on Earth. Does anybody know how old we think Earth is? Second Yeah 4.5, 4.6. I have in my notes 4.6. So Earth is thought to have originated about 4.6 billion years ago. When did the first solid rocks appear on Earth? So when was the surface kind of solidified? Anybody know? About 3.9 billion years ago, okay? And when do we think life started to develop on the planet? Any ideas? Take a guess. Two? One? 3.5 billion years ago, okay? So this is really remarkable. We think that it didn't, I mean, of course, it took a long time because we're talking about millions of years, hundreds of millions of years. But still, if you look sort of at the big picture, it didn't actually take life that long to evolve on the planet. So why do we actually think that is the case? What's the evidence for that? When you look into sedimentary rocks, so old rocks that arose from sediments, what you find around this time, you find that chemicals start to appear, organic molecules, that really resemble uh, organic uh, molecules in modern life. So we have sort of chemical tracers or chemical fossils. So, tracers that indicate the presence of organisms. But what we also find is so-called microfossils. And I have a picture of that here, where when you actually take rocks and you actually slice them into very, very thin uh, slices, you can put them under specific microscopes. And what you then find is that many rocks that are very, very old have those kinds of inclusions in them. And these things really resemble very much modern prokaryotic cells, modern bacterial cells, for example. And so um, those microfossils are generally taken as an indication also. that life was already present uh, during those times. Now, when we take a, a quick sort of overlook of um, the evolution of life on the planet, again, uh, this, uh, this graph here summarizes sort of the last 4.6 billion years or so um, when life originated. We see that there was a period of chemical evolution, and then Somewhere here in that region, it's, of course, not really well understood when that exactly happened, uh, the origin of life is placed. But I want to alert you to a couple of really, really critical steps here that are shown on this graph, which we'll actually talk a little bit more about. It is thought that life very early on split into three major lineages, Okay, The bacteria, the archaea, and what is called here a nuclear line. And I'll come back to that in a minute or so. Then a further major event, which you may remember, is that oxygenic photosynthesis actually evolved, which means that cyanobacteria evolved that started to produce oxygen as a byproduct of photosynthesis. And this really fundamentally changed the chemistry of the Earth. It actually became an oxidizing atmosphere. And what you see here is, Um, once the oxygen concentration rose over a certain level it allowed the development of an ozone shield. Now what does that mean? What was the critical significance of the presence of an ozone shield? Anybody know? What does it block out? Anybody remember that? What's the big significance of the ozone hole over Antarctica for example? It allows UV radiation to hit the Earth's surface And in fact, if there were no ozone, the UV radiation would be so strong that there would be no life possible on on land. So once the ozone shield actually developed, organisms could conquer basically the land surface and uh, settle on the land surface. And this then um, is thought uh, to be at least correlated with the development of endosymbiosis. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But it basically led to the origin of modern eukaryotes, so your ancestors, essentially. But there was still a long time, obviously, until humans appeared. We have here the origin of animals or metazoans. And then the age of the dinosaurs is already a very small blip here on this graph. And humans don't even feature on that, because we're so recent. So, But what I want to show you here is that three major lineages evolved early on, and these are the bacteria, the archaea, and what we call a nuclear lineage. And the significance of those nuclear lineages that it basically combined with bacteria to form the modern eukaryotic cell. So the eukarya, or eukaryotes, how they're also called. And it was this combination that we call the endosymbiosis event. I want to explain this a little bit more. And then I'll show you, finally, how we can actually, why we actually know that those things are very likely to have occurred a long time ago. Yes? Is that and bacteria? Um, It means the bacteria and the nuclear lineage combine to form the oh. eukaryote. OK? And I'm, I'm actually going to explain this on this slide here. So um, if you have any more questions after that, please let me know. So, again, this shows you this early evolution, this early split into archaea, bacteria, and this sort of uh, nuclear line. It is thought that this nuclear line were were single-celled organisms that increased in cell size and then developed uh, or partitioned their DNA into a nucleus basically so how you find it exactly how you find it in modern eukaryotic cells but then what happened is that this cell took up a bacterial cell and over time this bacterial cell became a symbiont okay and in fact it became the mitochondrion and so what this mitochondrion now does in the modern eukaryotic cell as you all know is it really took over the energy metabolism So the the proto-eukaryotic cell took up a heterotrophic bacterium that formed the mitochondrion. And this ultimately then gave rise to protozoa and to modern-day animals. But there was a secondary um, symbiotic event that this cell, once it had taken up a heterotrophic bacterium, it took up an autotrophic bacterium, a cyanobacterium, so an oxygenic uh, photosynthesizer, And this actually then led to the development of modern algae and modern plants. So what we can say is that um, mitochondria are ancient heterotrophic bacteria. And the chloroplasts are ancient cyanobacteria, so oxygenic photosynthetic bacteria. And these obviously have co-evolved to then form animals And finally, here, plants. So now, obviously, we're talking here about events that are very, very long, that happened a very, very long time ago. And so the big question is really how do we actually really know this? And this takes me to the third topic that is that of molecular evolution. So we can state the problem again, and that is, very simply put, evolution is incredibly slow. okay, And therefore, its processes are not directly observable. And we need to actually use inference techniques um, to reconstruct evolutionary processes. Now, what do we use when we want to reconstruct the evolutionary history of animals and plants, usually? Anybody? Fossils. exactly. So you take a shovel, essentially, and dig down into the, into the uh, different layers. And there's techniques how you can actually determine the age of different sedimentary rocks, for example. And then you can construct, if you're lucky, you find enough fossils of a particular lineage, you can reconstruct the evolution of that lineage. I'm sure you all have seen the, uh, the example of the horse, for example, where we have actually quite good evidence what ancient horses looked like. And we can reconstruct the sequence of events that led to the evolution of modern day horses. Now. You can imagine, though, that when we talk about such ancient events like these, this, there really is no fossil record. Okay, So um, what people have figured out then is that, um, and that was really a, a, a stroke of genius that um, came about in the late 60s, is that DNA molecules can act as evolutionary chronometers. Okay, now what do I mean by that? I mean that you can take DNA sequences or gene sequences from different kinds of organisms. and Based on those gene sequences, you can reconstruct their relationships to each other. You can determine whether two organisms are very closely related or whether they're only very distantly related. And the underlying mechanism of that is that um, mutations Happen with a certain probability? All the time. Okay? So the idea is that as time passes on, DNA molecules will change. Okay? So they will accumulate actually mutations. And So this will lead to, and then the idea is that the amount of change in a particular DNA sequence is proportional to the time of separate evolution of two different lineages or two different organisms. So the amount is more or less proportional to time since oops, the last common ancestor. So let me explain how this is actually done. What you really need in order to do this is you need genes that are related to each other, Okay. So genes, oops to be a comma, need related genes. They need to be um, universally distributed. That means all organisms that you want to compare need to have this type of gene. And those genes need to have conserved function. Okay. And these genes, we can then Compare to each other and I'll explain how this is actually done. Any questions so far? All right So the example that I actually want to bring is the 16S ribosomal RNA genes. oftentimes abbreviate this rRNA, OK? Now, does anybody remember what the ribosomal RNAs are and do? What's the ribosome? Yes? It's an in the cell. Right, and what does it do? exactly it's involved in the or it, it's the location where messenger rna is translated into protein now the ribosomal rnas are an integral part of the ribosome they play both a catalytic role as well as a structural role in the ribosome and so fundamentally because this is such a fundamental organelle all living organisms possess it so all organisms have it so this allows us to use these genes to really compare all living organisms to each other. Okay, so it's a very important point. I I'm want to just show you a. Okay, if it wakes up, there we go. An example of these ribosomal RNA genes. Now, this is actually what you see here is a secondary structure of the actual RNA, the ribosomal RNA. Now. these molecules have a secondary structure because they play a catalytic and structural role. And so the the really amazing thing is when you look at this structure, the structure determines really the function of those molecules in, in different organisms. And then look at this. We have here a bacterium and here an archaea. Now, if you think back to the first couple of slides, what I showed you is that those organisms have not shared a common evolutionary history for about four or so billion years. Okay? Or three billion years, excuse me. But if you just glance very quickly at those structures, you see that they look very uh, similar to each other. Okay? So this is an indication that the function is really very highly conserved of those molecules. However, when you actually look at the sequences in detail, what you will find, that there's different regions. And I've given some examples here, denoted by A, B, and C, in those molecules. And these different regions in the molecule are really the key to its usefulness in figuring out the evolution and the ecology of uh, many organisms. The region number A here, or denoted by A, are sequence stretches that are the same in all living organisms. So they're universally conserved, which means If you get a mutation in your gene in that particular region, you're dead, Okay, That's why it's conserved, essentially. Then we have those regions B where the length is conserved, but the sequence is not. So there's sequence change allowed, but the length needs to be conserved. And then there's those regions C where neither length nor sequence is actually conserved, and where we get a lot of variation. So let me uh, write this down. We have three types of sequence stretches. We have A, what I call the universally conserved sequences. with B, with length but not sequence is conserved. And we have C when neither length nor sequence is actually conserved. And the first two stretches. The first two types of sequence stretches are very important in figuring out the phylogeny or the evolutionary relationships amongst organisms, whereas those sequence stretches, number C, because they vary so dramatically, are very important in identifying organisms. And we'll talk more about this actually next time. So what can we actually now do with those sequences? Well, the first step is we need to generate an alignment. This is actually shown here, where each row denotes a gene from a particular organism. Okay? So these are all abbreviated here. These actually aren't ribosomal RNA genes, but other genes. And then what you will see here is that we can recognize those three different regions that I pointed out before. You have the regions A, which tell you which nucleotides to line up with each other. So you use this sort of as an anchor, because those sequences never vary amongst organisms. And then the sequence region B, where you line up sequences that vary uh, in, uh, or, or stretches that vary in sequence, but not in length. Now, why is this important? Because It's important because you have in each column the nucleotides that have originated from a common ancestral nucleotide, and whose variation over time you can actually monitor. Okay. Is everybody with that? Any questions? Okay, great. The second step then is the calculation of a similarity. And this is shown here. Um, Again, we have a very simplified alignment now of um, four different organisms. Here we have uh, those sequences that we want to compare. And what you will see is that they're overall very similar, but they differ in certain nucleotides. And so what we simply do is, for each pair of sequence combinations, we calculate a sequence similarity value. So what you see is that you have 12 nucleotides, And the first pair differs in three nucleotides, Okay, So that tells us then that the, or it's called actually a distance here, I'm sorry. Let me write this down here. Simply one minus the similarity, of course. But uh, so basically, a quarter of the nucleotides differ between A and C, a third of the nucleotides differ, and so on. Okay. So you do this for each pair of um, uh, sequence pairs, uh, of sequences. Excuse me. The third step is then to calculate a correction for multiple Mutations affecting the same nucleotides. Now you can imagine that over time there's a, a, a probability that a particular nucleotide mutates, say, twice. Okay, so in the first instance. It may change from A to a G, but then it changes to a C. But when you look at the modern-day sequences, you don't know that this actually happened. And so there's ways to statistically estimate what the likelihood is that um, a sequence actually contains uh, such multiple events. Okay, And this we call a uh, corrected evolutionary distance, then. And you will notice that the corrected evolutionary distance is invariably larger than the actual observed one. Now, what can we then do with those distances? We can constrain them into a best fit tree of relationships. So we can draw a what we call best fit tree that's shown here. We have our four organisms, and when you look at um, those branches of the tree, what you will see is that they will add up roughly to the corrected evolutionary distance here. So between A and B, we have 0.23 and 0.08, which roughly gives you 0.3 here. Okay. Whereas between uh, A and C, the tree is contra- uh, constrained such that we have 0.31 and here 0.15. And so overall, you roughly get uh, the uh, distance here that we have calculated. And so what this means is that you order the organisms by their calculated evolutionary distance. And so you have now obtained, actually, a very intuitive picture of the relationship of those organisms to each other, um, where A and B are obviously the most closely related ones, and A and D are the most distantly related ones. Okay. Is everybody with it? Any questions? Okay. Now, this best fit tree is what we call an a phylogeny. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. This really, these techniques really revolutionized the study of evolutionary relationships. And one of the things that it allowed us to do is to construct universal phylogenetic trees, or what we can also call the tree of life. And I'll show you this on the next slide, and then I want to make a few um, general statements about this. So first of all, when you analyze um, all known organisms, and obviously that that would be a big task, but representatives of uh, known organisms, what you will find is indeed that we have three major lineages, the bacteria, the archaea, and the eukarya. OK. So we have what we call three domains of life. The archaea, bacteria, and the eukarya. So this really is the evidence that life really split very, very early on into those three lineages that I showed you before, Okay. Interestingly, two of those major domains here are prokaryotic, Okay. So two of the domains are prokaryotes. Moreover, if you actually look at the types of organisms that are on here, is that you will notice that even on the eukaryotic side of the tree, most of the organisms here are actually microbial. So they're single-celled organisms. And that means that most of the life on the planet is microbial. The vast diversity of organisms on the planet are microorganisms. So we can say most life is microbial. And when you then look at analysis of uh, mitochondria and chloroplasts, which all have their own um, genetic machinery and therefore also their own ribosomes, you will see that the mitochondrion and the chloroplast both tree within the bacteria. So we really have an amazing confirmation of this endosymbiont theory, which was actually developed in the absence of gene sequences by some Russian scientists in the um, early uh, 20th century. So we have that mitochondria and chloroplasts. Within the bacteria, and this really supports the endosymbiont theory. So really you can say eukaryotes really just walking, swimming, and flying incubators for bacteria, right? So we're just host for uh, abundant <coughs> microorganisms. Okay, so basically you can um, what you should take home from this is the three domains of life: two are prokaryotic, and even so, uh, even more so, uh, most life, most of the diversity that we find, is actually microbial. And then finally, the uh, endosymbiont theory is actually confirmed by those kinds of phylogenies. Now, what I want to cover in the remaining time is how we can actually use now those sequences to learn something about organisms in the environment. That's the topic of molecular ecology. To introduce this, I just want to show you a couple of slides um, that really sort of capture what the big problem is that we're facing here. Now when we look at the abundance of prokaryotic cells in different kinds of environments, what we see is that there's an enormous number of different prokaryotes out there. This summarizes here um, different types of environments. We have the marine environment, freshwater environments, sediments and soils, subsurface sediments and animal guts. And then this number here gives you the average number of prokaryotic cells either per milliliter or per gram. And then here we have the total number of cells obtained by multiplying the average number with the total volume of the particular environment. So what you can see is that in the marine environment we have on average half a million cells per milliliter of water. Okay? In fresh water we have about a million cells. So, what is that telling you? There's a ton of prokaryotes out there. When you go swimming, you take a little gulp of water. You've probably eaten several million prokaryotes. Okay? But it's nothing to worry about this because what this also tells you is that the very, very few prokaryotes out there are really pathogens. Because otherwise you would be sick all the time. Okay. Now in sediments and soils, in as little as a gram, okay, you have a, a 5 times 10 to the 9 prokaryotic cells almost. A billion, five billion 5 uh, billion uh, microbial cell, uh, uh, prokaryotic cells out there. And then even in very, very deep sediments that reach down to 3,000 meters, you have substantial number of prokaryotic cells. Well, and here is your guts. 10 to the 5 times 10 to the six. Gives you 10 to the 11, right, per gram. So again, you're just a walking incubator for a very complex microbial community, okay? Here's the global abundance. You see that um, deep subsurface sediments and the marine environment are probably, in terms of numbers at least, the most important uh, microbial environments. Now, faced with this enormous abundance of uh, prokaryotes out there, a very important question is how many of them are out there? Okay? or how diverse are prokaryotes in the environment. That's important if you want to figure out their function in the environment and um, want to understand also their evolution. And what I want to show you here is that we've gone through an amazing development in our understanding of prokaryotic diversity in the environment over the last um, uh, 10, 15 years or so. Who knows about E.O. Wilson here? Nobody? One person? So, he wrote a very famous book on biodiversity, which was published in 1988, where he tried to summarize really how diverse the known organisms are on the planet and also tried to extrapolate um, to the total diversity. And what you see is that he came up with about 1.4 million different species here, mostly dominated by insects. Okay, That's the big uh, section here on this pie chart. Then plants, very important. And if you look, the prokaryotes feature with about 3,500 different species. So in 1988, we thought there were just very few prokaryotic species out there. Now, if you look about 10 years into the future and take this estimate here and this just exemplifies how our thinking has changed, really. You see that we think now that there's about 11 million different species out there and that the vast majority of them are prokaryotic, okay, 10 million. So this big part of the pie chart is really the prokaryotic diversity. Now what really has changed is that we've actually started to use molecular techniques to determine the diversity of Um, prokaryotes in the environment. So molecular ecology is really the use of molecular gene sequences obtained directly from the environment to learn about the diversity, prokaryotic diversity out there. Now, this slide just um, quickly summarizes this. Basically, the idea is that you go out into the environment and collect either water or soil samples that as I just showed you, invariably contain a lot of different prokaryotic cells. You then lyse the cells and purify their DNA, and so then you end up with a mixture of DNA that represents the organisms out there. And then you can use universal PCR primers to actually amplify ribosomal RNA genes from all the organisms that are present in your samples. Now, why can you use universal PCR primers? Well, they target the regions number A that I showed you before, those regions in the genes that are invariant amongst all organisms. You guys all remember how the PCR works, right? Covered this. Okay? Yes? No? Who doesn't? You don't? (laughs) All right, come to the board. Just kidding. (laughs) Okay, you should look it up. I don't have time to cover this, unfortunately. But basically, it's a technique that allows you to amplify specific types of genes million to billion fold. Okay. And once you have done this, what you can do is you can purify the genes on gels and then separate them by cloning them into individual plasmids. And those plasmids are then inserted into E. coli cells, and the E. coli cells are then individually grown up so that each um, culture contains only a single plasmid. And you can then sequence these uh, ribosomal DNA, DNAs or ribosomal RNA genes, um, from those clones. And so you have obtained a library of the ribosomal RNA genes from the environment. So we use environmental ribosomal RNA gene libraries, from which we then can actually compare uh, how many different types of genes are out there. So let me show you an example of this. What we have done uh, recently, we've gone out and done one of the first really comprehensive samplings of coastal bacteria plankton, which means bacteria that are present free-living in ocean water. And so we've done this. We collected all those uh, clones, and then basically we constructed those phylogenetic trees that I showed you before that really allow us to see how many different types are out there and how uh, closely related they are to one another. And what we found is that in this environment that you think might be very simple because it's just a water column, right? No, Not much structure in there. We found over 1,500 bacterial 16S ribosomal RNA sequences to co-occur. So an enormous diversity of prokaryotes of bacteria in that particular environment. And the important point is that when you actually look um, at a collection of such studies that I just showed you, what you find is that the vast majority of microorganisms in the environment have never been cultured. So traditionally, what we do, of course, to learn about microorganisms, when you grow E. coli or so, you throw them onto culture plates, you make lots of different cells, and that allows you to study some of their properties. Okay? But when you look, for example, at results from the ocean, this summarizes now coastal and open ocean environments. Again, the bacterioplankton is those free-floating bacterial cells in the water. And you compare um, this to what what we've actually been able to culture from those environments. What you see is that you have some dominant groups here. They have all funny names, most of them, because they're just clones in clone libraries. But these are the dominant groups that show up in clone libraries. Here's their relative representation in different clone libraries from a variety of environments. And so here you have one very important one, the SAR 11 group, or this one, the SAR 86, that always show up in clone libraries. But we've never seen them in culture. So the dominant, the important point to realize here is that what um, is actually happening is that whenever we go out into the environment, we find a great diversity of bacteria out there, but we have no idea what they actually do. And this is one of the big questions that we need to answer to understand really how the planet actually works. What are those uncultured microorganisms out in the environment really doing Um, and what is their importance. And I'll talk about this next time when I talk about environmental genomics, because essentially what we can do now is we have techniques available that allow us to isolate at least large fragments of their genomes, sequence those, and look what kinds of genes they have present. And that allows us then to infer some of their function um, in the biogeochemical cycles in the environment. Okay, so with this, I'm going to close today unless you have any more questions